Welcome to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. I would like to speak about a wonderful gift that we all share, without which we could not fulfill our purpose on the earth. It is the gift of language. To place this topic in proper perspective, I will start at the very beginning. I'm told that's a very good place to start. When God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, He made it clear that they and their descendants were to have dominion over all the earth. Or, in other words, they were to have presiding and governing power and authority in the earth. It was surely not their physical strength that would give them dominion, because many animals were larger and stronger than they were, but by other means, among which language was paramount because with it they could commune with God and establish relationships in their new world. It is significant that after Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden, his first task was to name things, for it is by naming and defining relationships that we establish order and dominion. Ever since that first linguistic exercise, the use of language has made it possible for us to record and transmit information from generation, thereby allowing us to maintain dominion. To this day, the power of words remains the primary means by which men and women try to exercise dominion or influence in the world. Sometimes that dominion or influence is economic, sometimes it's political, often emotional, and fortunately in its finest manifestations, spiritual. I'd like to share a few examples of how we use and how we are influenced by language in each of these spheres—the economic, the political, the emotional, and the spiritual. Let's first consider how words affect us economically. Millions of dollars are spent each year in carefully crafting the messages we see in advertising—everything from the self-indulgent, I'm worth it to the very clever Yo Quiero Taco Bell. (laughs) I've always been amused by commercials that say nothing tastes better or washes better than Brand X. If that's the case, I guess I should buy nothing. Companies recognize the power of words when they name products. If a product has a special or an appealing name, it can be sold for a higher price, hence designer labels. Of course, if a name becomes associated, with negative feelings, it can have negative economic power to keep people from buying that product. When General Motors introduced its Chevy Nova to Latin America, it was was embarrassed to learn that Nova meant it doesn't go in Spanish. A slightly older generation among us will remember how the Edsel automobile was a sales failure and someone quipped that it looks like an Oldsmobile sucking a lemon. The name Edsel could never sell automobiles successfully. In the years that followed, automobile manufacturers became very cautious in naming cars. For a time, they used animal names, 
cougar, lynx, mustang, cobra, and so on. Then, then cautiously they settled for two or three syllable names that ended in the vowel A and sounded just a little bit Japanese. Consider Acura, Centra, Mazda, Aurora, Festiva, Integra, Maxima, Corsica, Corolla, and so on. <clears throat> These similarities are not coincidental. Likewise, some, ago, far, some time ago, pharmaceutical companies found that the names of their products would sell well if they ended in IN. Think of it, aspirin, penicillin, coracidin, pamperin, cholestin, just to mention a few. With modern information technologies, we're being bombarded more than any previous generation with linguistic messages designed to influence us economically. Consider how many credit card and loan offers you receive in a month, or how many ads you see as you search the internet. As the new millennium approaches, this bombardment will only increase. Our business world is very much aware of the economic power of words. Perhaps we should be also, so we can recognize how we're being influenced by them. <clears throat> and what about the politics? <clears throat> what would politics be without the power of words? The words that inform, words that persuade, words that manipulate, words that tell half-truths, words that inspire, and words that do speak truth. With the passage of time through earlier millennia, some sacred uses of language undoubtedly became corrupted and used not only for sacred purposes but also for political purposes. For example, in some pre-literate cultures, <clears throat> a shaman or some other political leader, maintains political power by relying on incantations or the power of secret or special words to accomplish certain tasks. I found it quite intriguing to study the shaman heroes in early Finnish oral traditions in the Finnish Kalevala, in which social position and power are determined by one's ability to exercise <clears throat> excuse me, and recite the right words. In modern society, <clears throat> the shaman has been replaced by such persons as advertisers, the spin doctors, televangelists, sometimes demagogues. Hitler's use of language was successful in motivating a nation, mobilizing them, and gaining the allegiance of many to do things they would never do of their own initiative. We have seen in recent decades the use of language by totalitarian regimes to misinform and to withhold information, all in an attempt to control people. Our own nation is guilty of what has been called doublespeak, in using euphemistic terms and dense jargon to mask unpleasant realities and to control public opinion. One wonders what Nephi, who delighted in plainness, would think of the scene we have in the world today. Sometimes zeal for a political cause motivates people to misrepresent the truth with shocking words to achieve their ends. Such misrepresentations seem very obvious, often ludicrous, when directed at this country by a hostile foreign government that wants to depict our country as totally evil. But such misrepresentations are not so obvious when they occur within our own borders. Our fast-paced world has given rise to a soundbite culture in which half-truths can be easily disseminated without discussion <clears throat> or rebuttal 
to, to, uh, to gain a good understanding of a person or an issue. Misuse of the power of words to achieve political ends can cause many problems before we become aware of it or before it is exposed. In our own recorded history, it, is, it has contributed to wars, martyrdoms, and character assassinations. Fortunately, we have also men and women of integrity who, like Nephi of old, speak truth with plainness and deserve our admiration. They carry our trust and our hopes for a better tomorrow. We are grateful for their righteous use of the power of words. Our First Amendment right to freedom of speech must carry with it a responsibility for speakers to be ethical and listeners to be discerning. Too often, zeal for a particular cause overrides one of these responsibilities. Recently, when our church leaders were encouraging members in California to uphold the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman, some accused the church of, quote, exporting the politics of hate, close quote. Most who read that phrase recognize it as political posturing, but it also pointed out the need for us to agree on at least the meanings of words. In fact, the most, one of the most important and necessary parts of our language is the notion of the definition. We must agree on definitions of words if discourse is to be civil and productive. When special interests are at stake, disagreements arise, and definitions become critical lines of defense. In legal cases, as you know, personal fortunes, careers, and life and death decisions can turn on the definition of a single word. Even as we speak, billions of dollars are at stake in a linguistic dance that a major tobacco company is doing to defend its actions, using one definition of the word addictive before Congress and in the courtroom, and another definition of that word when it speaks to you and me. Excuse me, definitions have been used throughout history to justify horrible things. In wartime, enemies are labeled with terms that make them seem less than human, so killing them is more tolerable. Slavery and the Holocaust were perpetuated by defining African blacks and Jews as something less than human. Some modern uses of racist language are not far from the same abuses. Some, in an attempt to discredit or marginalize the church, have developed a new definition of Christian, which conveniently and ironically excludes the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As others strain to define words to justify their actions, the results can be contradictory, as we have seen with our society's attempt to define a fetus as something with potential, but not really a person, that is, if it is aborted. But if someone kills a fetus in an act of violence against a pregnant woman, the fetus may be defined as a person, and the perpetrator may be charged with a crime. A society weaves a tangled web to justify its actions. History has shown that as definitions change, so do our perceptions and changes in behavior do not lag far behind. We must be on guard to keep our own thinking straight. Linguists know that definitions have a way of changing through time and in response to social pressures. <clears throat> but eternal verities do not change through time 
or in response to social pressures. This fact alone cries out for living prophets in any age whose words can keep the doctrine pure and the path straight. Paul was very much aware of the power of words in his day when he cautioned, there are many words, there are many voices in the world and none is without signification. With these many voices in our world, we truly need an iron rod that will safely guide us through. <clears throat> we may begin to think that language <clears throat> use or abuse is mainly a, an economic or political issue, but it's also a very personal and emotional one. The power of language does not stop at what or whom we can control with it. In fact, one of the most significant functions of language is quite beyond our control. We might even say it controls us. It is the function of establishing our identities. Few things are closer to our personal, group, or national identities than is our language. Few things affect us more emotionally than hearing comments about our language. Consider how we feel when we have a term paper returned with negative comments about our use of English. Many immigrants to this country feel discriminated against because they speak with an accent. Persons from different dialect areas finds others' speech amusing, but their own is perfectly normal. Children moving to a new neighborhood will rapidly learn the vocabulary and pronunciation of the new area in order to be part of the group. <clears throat> Even on a national level, our language defines our identities. Consider the French-speaking Canadians who have agitated for the creation of their own country or the Estonian World War II refugees who continued to teach Estonian to their children for over 50 years in the hopes of returning to their homeland when it would be once again free. Every country and every region has its own linguistic pride and linguistic idiosyncrasies. These define it for good or for ill. Residents of Utah Valley joke good-naturedly about the pronunciation of Spanish FARC for Spanish fork. <clears throat> in my own dialect, words that most of you pronounce, war and ward, are pronounced war and ward. And there's no difference between pitcher and picture. They're both pitcher. Slight differences in pronunciation have sometimes had very serious consequences. We read in Judges that the Ephraimites and the Gileadites were at war. And when many Ephraimites tried to cross over into Gileadite territory, pretending to be Gileadites, the Gileadite men would stop them and ask them whether they were Ephraimites. If they answered no, the Gileadites would ask them to say the word shibboleth, a Hebrew word meaning stream. Ephraimites would pronounce the word with an S sound, sibboleth, because they had difficulty pronouncing the SH sound. When they pronounced it this way, their true identities were revealed and they were killed. We read that 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. To this day, we refer to any characteristic of one's speech that distinguishes him or her as a member of a particular group as a shibboleth. The Ephraimites learned then what Peter was to learn later, that our speech betrays us. As far as we know, the Spanish FARC pronunciation has not resulted in a single death, <clears throat> although it may produce some mayhem against me after today. 
Even the names by which we are known influence our hopes, our aspirations, and our, and our behavior. What young man would not think twice about how he behaves if he had been given the name Gordon B? Surely Abraham, Sarai, and Jacob reflected often on the significance of their names after the Lord changed them from Abraham, Sarah, and Israel. Personal names carry power, and we have all been lifted by hearing our own names mentioned in positive contexts. On the other hand, many of us have been hurt by being called names, and we've hurt others by using unkind or unwise words. As children, we heard, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. We all know that's false, especially those among us who have been called names when they were young, who were told they were stupid or ugly or always doing dumb things. Often the damage done by words is worse than the damage done by physical violence. In reality, we should handle our words as carefully as we would handle a gun, because both can have devastating effects and bring long-lasting pain to others and to ourselves. Brigham Young taught an interesting principle that by controlling our words, we gain control of our thoughts rather than the other way around. The epistle of James teaches us that small things like the bit in a horse's mouth or the rudder on a ship can control the, the larger body. So also, by the small matter of controlling our tongues, we gain control over our bodies. We do need to fortify ourselves against others' use of language that influences us emotionally, whether it be vulgar or hurtful language. We are the children of a loving Father in heaven, and regardless of what may be said about us, we should know that we are who we are, what our potential is, and what the Atonement can do for us. Not everyone has the blessing of that knowledge. Consider the experience related by the late Isaac Asimov, the author and editor of over 470 books, and considered by many as one of America's greatest intellects. Asimov was not shy about his own abilities. In his memoirs, he wrote, quote, I have always thought of myself as a remarkable fellow, even from childhood, and I have never wavered from that opinion, close quote. <clears throat> If anyone had what modern society calls high self-esteem, Asimov seems to have had it. Yet in his memoirs, he recounts an incident that he could never forget. As a 15-year-old high school student, Asimov had enrolled in a writing class. The teacher's first assignment was to have the students write an essay. When the teacher asked for volunteers <clears throat> to read their efforts before the class, Asimov raised his hand, I had only begun to read about a quarter of it, he recalls, when the teacher stopped me and used a barnyard term to describe my writing. I had never heard a teacher use a dirty word before, and I was shocked. The class wasn't, however. They laughed at me very uproariously, and I took my seat in bitter shame." Close quote. Although humiliated, Asimov conceded in his memoirs, that his teacher's assessment was correct. He himself explains that he had tried to affect a literary style, but what emerged was, quote, rotten, unquote. <clears throat> he took his teacher's criticism to heart and wrote a lighthearted piece that the same teacher had printed in the school's literary journal. 
It was his first significant publication. But when he thanked the teacher for including it in the journal, the teacher hurt him more by saying he only published it because he needed a light piece to complete the issue, and all the other pieces were serious. <clears throat> At the age of 70, two years before his death, and 55 years after the incident, Asimov wrote of that teacher, quote, I hate very few people, but I hate him. <clears throat> I wish I had a time machine and could go back to 1934 with some of my books and some of the articles that, I have, been that have been written about me and say to him, how do you like that, you rotten louse? You didn't, <laughs> you didn't know who you had in class. If you had treated me right, I could have recorded you as my discoverer instead of branding you a rotten louse, close quote. <clears throat> now, we could discuss Asimov's ego. And with gospel insight, how he could have risen, should have risen, from bitterness to forgiveness. Still, if one so confident in, in his abilities can be hurt for so long, we must recognize the long-lasting power of our own unkind words. We can imagine how very different this scenario would have been if his teacher had shown genuine caring and had discussed Asimov's writing in a private, friendly setting. Perhaps it would have been different, too, if he had attended primary and had learned a sweet song, I am a child of God. Milton Steinberg is quoted as saying, when I was young, I admired clever people. Now that I'm older, I admire kind people. And his colleague, Joseph Telushkin, adds, it's a greater accomplishment to be kind than to be brilliant. From Proverbs, we read, a word fitly spoken <clears throat> is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. <clears throat> I've tried to illustrate, ever so briefly, some of the economic, political, and emotional power of words. I'm sure you can add many more examples. Let us now consider the spiritual power of words. The Church, of course, is very concerned with the power of language, <clears throat> not to promote nationalism, because the gospel must always be international or non-national, nor to impose political control through linguistic manipulation, because the spirit must always be free, but to bring the Church out of obscurity, to unite a Zion people, to spread the gospel message, to inspire people to good works, to maintain the efficacy of sacred ordinances, and to preserve respect for deity and for each other. From time to time, the names of church programs have been changed to more accurately communicate intent. Thus, ward teaching has become home teaching. The Mutual Improvement Association has become the Young, women's, young Men's and the Young Women's Organization, or simply Mutual. The church has a significant commitment to learning foreign languages and translating, translating church materials into those languages with as much dispatch and accuracy as means will allow. <clears throat> Every young priesthood holder learns that prayers offered at the sacrament table are to be spoken exactly as directed in the scriptures. And it goes without saying that the church frowns <clears throat> upon the use of vulgar language and the taking of the name of God in vain is a serious offense. And English-speaking members of the Church are encouraged to use thee, thou, and thy pronouns when giving prayers. 
As many others were abandoning him, the Savior asked Peter whether he too would leave him. Where would I go? Peter answered. Thou hast the words of eternal life. The words of eternal life are words that teach us who we are, what our condition is, who our Redeemer is, why we can trust him, and how we can return to eternal life with our Father in heaven. While we are in mortality, such words also invoke the power of the priesthood, pronounce blessings on the sick, heal hearts and minds through kind expressions and wise counseling. Words of confession lift the burdens of sin from us. Words place us under covenants so we can lift and be lifted. They bind us to eternal blessings, and they give us confidence in the future because we know that God does not lie. It is interesting that after Peter had told the Savior who others thought that he was, the Savior asked him, Whom say ye that I am? Surely the Savior was not asking for information that he didn't already have, but rather to have Peter testify verbally, as he did, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. There is something very powerful about giving testimony of the Savior in our own words, for it binds us to him and makes us receptive to additional light. Alma knew well the power of testimony when he gave up the judgment seat to go among the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them, to stir them up in remembrance of their duty, that he might pull down the word of God. By the word of God, all the pride and craftiness and the contentions which were among his people, seeing no, no way that he might reclaim them, save it were in bearing down in pure testimony against them. President Packer has taught that a testimony is to be found in the bearing of it. This gaining of testimony happens in a way that the world doesn't understand because it involves another dimension in the power of words. Paul speaks of this dimension when he, dimension when he, said, when he teaches that the natural man receiveth not the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The words of eternal life that Peter referred to are spiritually discerned. Such words strike a chord in our souls and we receive a testimony of their truth. The prophet Joseph Smith experienced this when he read the epistle of James, If any of ye lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. The prophet Joseph recalls, Never did any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of a man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling in my heart. Let me share just one passage of scripture that speaks very loudly to my heart of its truth. Consider the words in the 13th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, which reports the visit of John the Baptist to restore the Aaronic priesthood upon the heads of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. If one were to invent such a story and hope to make others believe it were true, I suspect he may embellish it with descriptions of remarkable signs from the heavens and impressive displays of power and authority. 
Instead, what we read is a humble statement by John the Baptist of what he was about. He spoke, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. Why don't we see John saying something more attention-getting, with a loud voice or with a clap of thunder? Could it be that he knew Joseph and Oliver from before? Could it be that he had a great, great, great respect for the prophet of this dispensation as one who was truly a great fellow servant in this work? Have you noticed how great souls behave mildly when they perform spiritual deeds? The fact is that truth does not need embellishment. Finally, could it be that unlike others of Joseph Smith's time who would have said in the name of Jesus Christ, John used the word Messiah, the name by which he knew the Savior during his time on earth? I submit to you that this straightforward language is powerful and bespeaks truth. Such is the power of the language in Joseph Smith's own story, the language in the Book of Mormon, and the other scriptures that testify of Christ and his mission. When I read the words aloud, I feel their power even more. It is language that's not always pleasing to the carnal mind and causes many to kick against the pricks, but when accepted and lived, it rings true with the spirit and enlarges the soul. It's clear that language is an important part in all of our relationships. It is especially so in our spiritual lives. It has been so throughout time, from the words, let there be light, to the words, it is finished. In the case of Ephraimites, the mispronunciation of shibboleth meant certain death. But in the case of Christ, the declaration arise, or go thy way and sin no more meant life and restoration. The Savior underscored the importance of using the gift of language in ethical ways when he taught, let your communications be yea, yea, nay, nay, for what is more than these cometh of evil. Paul, in a letter to the Romans, also noted the importance of language in bringing the gospel to the world when he wrote, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? In other words, missionaries and their message are critical to accomplishing the task. The Lord has decreed that everyone will hear the gospel in his own tongue. When we understand how our deeply felt emotions are evoked more accurately and meaningfully by words in our native languages, than they are in the words of languages we have learned as foreign languages, we begin to understand why it is important for us to hear the gospel in our own tongue so we can feel the full significance of the words and be receptive to the Spirit. Such realization, combined with an awareness of the other influences of language that we have discussed, should lead us to a a reverence for considerate, careful, truthful, and ethical use of language. For the very words we speak shape our beliefs, define our dominions, and create the emotional, intellectual, 
and spiritual worlds in which we live. <clears throat> I leave you to ponder the significance of the Savior himself being called the Word. In the King James Version of the Bible, the Gospel of John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. The Joseph Smith translation equates the word, the word with both the Gospel and the Son of God. This word has endowed us with power to receive all that the Father has, but none of it can be received without words. I testify that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Redeemer, and that the words of eternal life revealed through modern prophets are true. That the Church of Jesus Christ is restored with all authority, keys, and added scripture, and as a stone cut out of the mountain without hands, it is rolling forth to fill the earth. It's a wonderful blessing for us to be fellow servants in such a great work. I end where I began, <clears throat> calling your attention to the connection between language and dominion. As we have seen, there are many kinds of dominions in our world, but only one kind that will last forever. May we be discerning of the language used in our world today, and may our own language be ever in harmony with his will. May virtue garnish our thoughts so that, as he has promised, our dominions shall be everlasting dominions, and without compulsory means shall flow unto us forever and ever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.